I'm really glad that you're, you're with us today. Uh, I do need to begin uh, by giving you a little bit of a warning. You can see that we're uh, in a series called Broken, Does Jesus Care About My Pain? Um, and so we have delved into some sensitive subjects, none more sensitive than today, uh, because I'm going to be talking about shame, uh, and especially as that relates to sexual assault and those sorts of things. And I know that's a sensitive subject, so I just want to say a couple of things here. Number one, if that would trigger you, please feel free to get up and go out and come back next week. Amen? Because we want this to be safe for you. Number two, if you have kids in here, you might want to consider where, where the, how that works out for you. I know some of them. I've tried to warn people as you came in. Uh, I won't be graphic, but the topic itself requires some, some level of of stuff that's going to make us uncomfortable. Uh, I do this because um, I, you'll see as we talk about shame, but one of the things that makes shame powerful is the fact that we won't talk about it. We won't talk about what happened to people. And what is in secret, uh, when we start doing that sort of thing, then it feels like, oh, they really should be ashamed of something, and that's really not the case. And so I just want to start it out uh, with, with that. Um, so the question we've been working on through all of this there we go. Uh, does the cross have good news for the sinned against? Okay, we know that it has good news for the sinner, and that, that's good, but does it have good news for the sinned against, for those uh, that have been harmed by others, have been wounded in some ways? And sometimes we don't talk about that very much. In fact, I don't think we talk about it very much at all. Uh, and so it ends up sounding like we have good news for the perpetrator, but not good news for the victim uh, and for the one that survives. And so uh, that's where kind of where we're going. We do have a memory verse we're working on. Let's say this together. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. I think that is a wonderful, powerful verse. Uh, and, and if you have trauma in your life, and like everybody does to a greater or lesser extent, I would encourage you to memorize this one because it is so powerful. Uh, this morning, our text, uh, we're going to look at a couple of texts, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Uh, and I'm going to invite you to listen to the text this morning. Uh, and and you, you can put your finger in it, that's great. Uh, but I kind of want to read uh, the story of it. And this is kind of a, a contemporary version of the events from another perspective. So open your hearts and your minds. It was a beautiful spring day. The daily chores and work of the day almost were enough to distract me from the worry over my husband. While any soldier's wife learns to deal with the loneliness, fear, and uncertainty, each day requires strength and energy to keep life as normal as possible. My body was tired, and sore, and dirty from the day's work. One of my favorite times of the day was my afternoon bath to wash away not only the dirt from my body, but also the fear and stress that also seemed to layer itself upon me. This day was like all others. After my bath, I was working on supper when a knock came at my door. I was, I was so alone in my thoughts that it startled me um, and caused me to jump. Was it someone with bad news about my husband? Was it a stranger at the door? No, it was a servant from the palace. He was kind, but very inquisitive, asking many questions about my family. I told him my name and connections and the name of my father and my husband. It was an abrupt conversation and seemed to be over before it began. After the servant left, I pondered the reason for such a visit. 
I, uh, it did make me think of my father, who had only passed away five years earlier. He and my grandfather were connected to the king as advisors. I did miss him and his words of hope, comfort, and promise. It also was both wonderful and hard to speak the name of my husband. When he is absent from my thoughts, the moments move quicker, and I can ignore my pain over, his battle, um, over battles and fear uh, for his safe return. Yet I trust that God will be faithful to me as I remain faithful to God. It was only a matter of hours when another knock came and startled me again. While I was still nervous to answer, I wondered if this knock was connected to the previous one. It was. I opened the door. I opened the door and everything changed. I opened the door and my life took a direction that caused great pain, anger, fear, torment. It was the same servant from the palace, but this time there was a host of other servants in accord. The servant mentioned that I was going to receive a high honor. The king would like to meet you. I was a bit shocked. I had, uh, sorry, uh, I had thought the king uh, would be with my husband at the battle. Despite my grandfather's association and my husband's loyalty to him, I had only seen the king from a distance at a parade in the city square though I can see his palace from the river behind my home. The head servant did not miss a beat and slowly announced that these fellow servants would help prepare me to properly meet the king. They came with perfume and oils, the finest fabrics to wear. While it felt nice to be pampered, I could not help asking myself, why would the king want to see me? Could he have, could he have bad news about my husband? Certainly a low-ranking army officer would bring a tragic report, not the king himself. Before I knew it, we were on our way to the palace. I closed the door of my home behind me as we left. Little did I know how much would begin to, be, to close around me. As the, at the palace and after the pleasantries with the king, it became obvious that his intentions, what his intentions really were. He told me that he had seen me bathe and my beauty enchanted him. His words had clearly meant to manipulate. He could not get me out of his head. He had to, had to admire and adore one of God's most beautiful creations. While his words attempted to flatter, they actually made me feel guilty and dirty and ashamed. Perhaps this was all my fault. It should have take, I should have taken more care to bathe out of the plain sight. I, I should have uh, been more careful. What was I to do? Certainly he knew I was married. I had told the servant explicitly that my husband was in the king's army fighting the king's war. Was this a test by God? Was our king not God's anointed? Who was I to say no to the king? I felt despair. I really had no choice. But perhaps if I allowed this to happen, God would prompt the king to help bring my husband home. All I could do was disembody my mind as I endured it. You do not resist the king. And I understand that although he set me up and in essence raped me, I could, I could be severely punished as an adulterer. He was beyond such laws. It also became obvious that after the king was done, he wanted little to do with me. He sent me on my way. Someone opened the palace doors as I left and then closed it behind me. I opened the door to my home, where now I felt almost an alien. I felt all alone. I felt like I had betrayed my husband. I felt ashamed. I felt broken. I felt this was my fault. Had I been unfaithful to God? 
Would God punish my husband for my behavior? Guilt, sadness, fear, and lots of tears through a, despair, a desperate and despairing night. I bathed again, of course not outside. It didn't help the anguish no matter how hard I tried to scrub it off. The haunting memory of that night persisted like a sliver in my mind for several weeks. As hard as I tried to pretend it never happened, the shame was faithful to remind me. Some of you have probably already figured out that who we're talking about in this passage is Bathsheba. You'll remember the story from David's perspective of uh, having an affair with Bathsheba, and an affair is really the wrong language. He raped her. He used power to get what he wanted. Uh, but Bathsheba's point of view, I think, helps bring this into focus for us. And most of you know the rest of the story, that not only did he rape her, but in addition to that, in order to cover his sin, he committed murder, killing his, her husband. There's another story right after this, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Uh, chapter 13 has the story of a, another woman, uh, Tamar. Tamar is the daughter of David, and he has a son, Ammon, who is a half-brother of, of uh, Tamar. And that story includes the fact that the one brother raped the sister. And you see the sin from one generation go into the next generation. One of the things I both love and hate about Scripture is it is brutally honest. And this is as brutally honest as brutally honest gets. And I bring this one up because it really illustrates what I need to talk about today. Because here's what Tamar said about what was happening to her. Where will I carry my shame? What am I going to do with this shame, this thing that's happened to me? Where do I, where do I put that? How do I get rid of that? How do I carry it in my life? How do I, how do I, I deal with it? It's kind of the haunting questions. And for thousands of years, women have been asking that same question. Where do I put my shame when this sort of thing happens? And sadly, we don't always help well in the church. Sadly, instead of embracing them and loving them and believing them far too often, and I have been in the church a very, very long time, and I'm not just talking about our church, I'm talking about the church worldwide, we end up saying to them, be quiet. Or worse, He's a nice guy. He would never do that to you. And we suddenly shift the blame to them. Both stories reveal a horrible truth that one of the saddest realities of sin is the victims not only endure the violation, but also carry shame, guilt, and humiliation with them because of that sin. And this is true not just of sexual violations, it's true of all kinds of violations, assaults and all of those sorts of things, but it is especially pointed with sexual violations. It's, it's difficult for, for us to understand sometimes as guys what that is like, and, but one of the reasons, honestly, it is so devastating is that especially Christians are unwilling to talk about it. So frankly, this morning... This is my, we're going to talk about whether you like it or not. <laughs> Nervous giggles. <laughs> Honestly, we just have to talk about it. Because when we don't talk about it, we multiply the shame. The women go away feeling like, oh, there must be something wrong with me because they don't want to talk about it. There's something shameful about what I did. And that is not the case. Amen? 
Okay, The victim does not need to have shame. And also when we don't talk about it, it ends up giving power to the perpetrator and, and protects the abuser because we don't want to talk about it and there aren't consequences for them. It deprives the survivor of the support and truth-telling that can heal them. Amen? It's so important. And you know this, just to kind of set this, the, the table here. Sexual assault is not about sex, it's about power. Amen? You understand that? It's not about that. In fact, just to give you a little, little really briefly, theology of sex, sex was created by God before the fall. So it falls in the category of very good, amen? Okay, It was designed between a man and a woman who've committed themselves for the rest of their lives together, and it is a wonderful thing. (laughs) Notice the the depth of that voice. That was a lot of men. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's a good thing. And that's okay. We should talk about sex. Sex is a good thing, okay, in that right context. But sexual assault is taking something God created good and twisting it and turning it ugly and nasty. And that's why it's such an affront. We take something that was good and turn it into evil. And the result of that every time is shame. Say shame. Yeah. So here's kind of a definition, a working definition. This is a secular definition, in fact. Shame is when people are made to feel that they have violated a social or moral standard. And I bring that up because sometimes shame is worse for good Christian women than it is for women who are not because we have a high moral standard. Hear me? You hear me? And so it's made difficult for them in that sort of thing. And it creates a deep sense of unworthiness, like I'm not apart, like I'm separated. And here's the question. You always know somebody's dealing with shame when they say, if people knew. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in my office. If people knew this about me, Pastor, they, they wouldn't want to be my friends. If people knew this about me, you wouldn't let me be in the church, and the people wouldn't let me be in the church. If people knew this about me, they, they would think we're all hypocrites here. If people knew... It's almost always shame. We're covering that thing up in our lives that that we consider shameful. And so hear this truth from me this morning. Survivors of other people's sins bear no guilt or shame. Okay, let's say this together. Survivors of other people's sins bear no guilt or shame. And this isn't a legal sense, because I'm not saying that you're not feeling that, okay? I know that people are feeling that. But I am here to tell you that is the devil whispering in your ear. That is not. God God holds no guilt against you. And you guys understand the concept. There's a difference between uh, emotional guilt and, and real guilt. So a psychopath is someone who does something that is profoundly guilty, profoundly evil, but feels no, no guilt over it, right? That, so there's a disconnect. They have real guilt, but they don't feel they don't feel anything. And you also probably have experienced at some point in your life where you thought you did something wrong and, and you feel guilty, only to find out you didn't actually do anything wrong, right? So you had emotions, but you didn't have actions. You weren't really, really guilty in that process. Well, guilt and shame fall in into that uh, category. Uh, shame, especially, is a nasty parting gift from the one that assaulted you. It's a horrible thing that can hang on. But just because you feel it doesn't mean it is true. It wasn't Bathsheba's fault. It wasn't Tamar's fault. Okay? That was not, it wasn't their fault. Okay? So, I'm going to get us in a little further here. Hold on. 
Far too often, men have not believed women who shared what had happened to them, or worse, accused them of being the problem. And this is just a description that I know is true. I have been in the church a long time, and it has impacted my life. Most of you know my family is medical. My mom was a nurse. Uh, in the 19, started in the 1950s. She graduated. She had a BSN and an RN, which is common now, but back then was very, very, very uncommon. And so she was usually running things. And it wasn't until in my teens that she began to share. I was, I was gifted with a family that was very open about things sexual. Uh, they, didn't, they had really good theology. They didn't believe it was shame, any of that sort of thing. So in, the, in my uh, later teenage years, she shared with me that, that one of the difficulties of her job was that it wasn't uncommon for men to touch her in inappropriate ways. And I wish I could say it was just the, just the patients, but it wasn't. It was doctors and other men in the in the in her profession that would do that. And they would say horrible things to her and sexual things to her. And so in my, my 17-year-old uh, justice kind of mode, I said, why didn't you report them? And she said something that forever changed my perspective on this issue. She said, because, number one, they wouldn't believe me. And number two, if they did believe me, they wouldn't do anything about it. That is a sad, sad sort of thing to hear from your mother. <clears throat> Sometimes good Christian folk who haven't experienced this kind of abuse don't take it seriously. And some of the worst things we can say is, he's such a nice guy, he would never do that. And I see women shaking their heads around it. Men are like, mm, I don't know. But I'm telling you guys, the women have an experience that we don't have. It's just not that, like that for us. Because hear me, even today, we're much better than we were when I was growing up. Even today, sexual assault is rampant in our country. Okay? So let me give you some statistics. Uh, just so you know, these come out of the National Violence, National Sexual Violence Resource Center and the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. One in five women experience rape or attempted rape. See how many people are in here? One in five. Rape or attempted rape? That statistic scares me to death, okay? 81% of women and 43% of men report experiences some form of sexual harassment. A couple of things there. Women experience sexual harassment at almost double the rate that men do. So it's no wonder, guys, that we're not very clued in in all of this. Number two... Over half of women experience it. Less than half of men experience it. You see the problem? Every 68 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. When I was sitting at my desk, I decided to do the math. In a 30-minute sermon, and that might be optimistic, but in a 30-minute sermon, that means that 26 people are sexually assaulted in the time it takes me to preach this. In an hour service, you're talking about 52 people. See the problem? From the 2009 to 2013, Child Protective Service agencies substantiated or found strong evidence to indicate that 63,000 children a year were victims of sexual assault in the United States. And here's the really scary part. This is before COVID. During COVID, it got worse. 
because people were at home, and the number one place where kids get sexually assaulted, and probably adults too in some ways, is at home. It's just incredibly scary to me to think about all of those sorts of things. And here's the deal. Christians are not immune. It happens to the women we love. It happens to the women who are part of our church and other churches. If we care about the women in our churches, and we do, amen, guys? Okay? We can't pretend it isn't happening. Jesus' words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? They especially resonate in these situations because in the moment when that is happening to them, they feel like God has abandoned them. And that's a part of the reason we had that sermon two weeks ago that so many people responded to in the midst of this. I want to jump now to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27, 27 through 35. Uh, And we're coming back to the crucifixion because this is all about does the cross have anything to say to those who who have been the the victims of of sin in their life. And so what has happened before this is that they've gone through all the trials. with He was arrested in the trials and all of that sort of thing. And Pilate, who's in charge, has finally become exasperated with the whole thing. And you'll remember that he washes his hands. They bring a bowl and he washes his hands of all of it. And then he gives Jesus over to the guards, to the Roman guards at that point, to be crucified. And so we pick the story up right there. Uh, Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort to him. So number one, they took Jesus to a place where they were comfortable, to their outpost where they stayed. And number two, it wasn't just the few guards that were there. They called everybody. Hey, come on, everybody, come on. Come on, be a part of this. So there was a big crowd in there. The next passage. And they stripped him and put a red cloak on him. And they stripped him. And that word means naked, naked, not kind of naked and put a red cloak on him. And what followed was torture and hitting him and doing all sorts of things. But they didn't just put the red cloak over the top of his clothes. They took everything off and bared him to everybody in that place. And then look, they take him and they take him to Golgotha uh, where they crucify him. And it says this, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, uh, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with bile to drink. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among themselves by casting lots. Divided his garments. I know the little pictures we get of Jesus. He's got a loincloth on, but we know enough about crucifixion to know that that's not the way it actually was. They completely stripped him naked and put him on the cross, exposed to everyone, and exposed to a road that goes by there that was heavily traveled so that everyone would see him. And it is made worse by the fact that that Hebrew men of this day were extremely, extremely modest. So here's what I want to say, and this may be hard for some of you to hear, but here's the truth. Jesus was sexually abused. He was sexually abused. That's the whole point of that was to humiliate and to shame. For, for Hebrew men, you, you remember the story of the, goods, uh, of, uh, of the prodigal son and at the end of it, the father goes running to, to embrace the son. And I've told you before, well, that was scandalous because in order to run, he'd have to pick up his robes and that would expose maybe from his knees down. And, and in their culture, to expose yourself like that was like to run around in your neighborhood in your underwear, you know? 
Anybody ever tried running around their neighbor and they're, okay, good. That's a whole other conversation we'd have to have if you tried that. But so if, if, if exposing your knees is, is running around in your underwear, can you imagine what it is to be stripped completely and totally naked publicly? Not only that, there were women there. And so Jesus experienced this incredible sort of thing. In fact, to this day, they still do that sort of thing in countries around the world. If you get caught stealing or something like that, they will strip people down and run them through the public streets naked. You remember the end of World War II, especially the women who had collaborated with the Nazis in France, they would shave off all their hair and strip them naked and run them through the town like that. It's an incredibly difficult sort of thing. But here is the one good piece of news out of all of this. Jesus knows what it's like to be sexually abused because he too is a survivor. He's in the sexual abuse club. I told you that I'm in the cancer club, right? Because I had cancer and especially because I had a really devastating cancer. I have new conversations with people about cancer. There's an insider sort of thing. It's not that they didn't talk to me about their cancer before, but now they share it a new level level because we both know what it's like to go through really ugly chemo. We know all of those sorts of things. There's an understanding. I'm in the cancer club. Jesus is in the sexual survivor club with some of you. Because I know in a congregation this size, one in five women have experienced at least attempted rape, and 80-some percent have been sexually harassed in some sort of way. Jesus understood in that moment to feel abandoned by God at his lowest moment when he's at the deepest point of his shame. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And that's one of the things you'll hear, especially from Christian women. Where was God when this was happening to me? I'm telling you, Jesus is in in the club. He's a part of it. Jesus suffered all of this in no small part so so that you would know that he knows what you went through. He knows. He was there. He understands. And what it means to continue to suffer. But here's some more good news in the midst of all of this. I love this. Jesus welcomed people who had been sexually shamed and abused. And again, because... We tend to clean up passages when we're preaching about them because we don't want to get too tangled up. But I just want to remind you about the woman at the well. Remember the woman at the well? She had had all of those husbands that kind of went through. Husband was probably a strong understanding. It meant she'd had a lot of men in her life. And then then the woman caught in adultery, that that she was the one that was brought to Jesus. And and I love that Jesus defended her, right? He wrote in the, we don't know what he wrote in the sand, but when I get to heaven, one of my questions is going to be, what did you write in the sand that made those guys leave, you know? And and, and he defended that, and he he, he welcomed the woman uh, at at the well. And and there's a certain sense in in this that, that, that all women, in some sense, well, let me put it this way. No little girl dreams of growing up and being a sex worker. They don't. They just don't. The most common reason people are involved in sex working is because they have no other choice. And in the first century, that was really, really true. Because if your husband died and you didn't have extended family and your husband couldn't provide for you anymore and you didn't have wealth or something like that, you did not have hardly any choices for a way to make enough money to buy bread for the day. And so where a lot of them would end up is in sex work of some sort. And and honestly, men tended to die a lot. In those days, wars would happen and it'd wipe out huge sections of, of the men. 
And so the fact that these women were involved in this, I know sometimes we kind of get high and mighty and, well, they're a loose woman and they're trying to do all of that. That's probably not the way it was. And even today, women who get caught in sex trafficking, often there's issues with addiction and, and abuse and home life and, and all of those. Things. No little girl hopes to grow up to be a sex worker. And Jesus embraced them. But, but maybe the most important story about Jesus embracing those is a story that we find in all of the Gospels, all three plus the last one. It's a story about a woman that is identified by the text as immoral. And what that meant was a sex worker of some sort, okay? And she does something extraordinary. Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry and he's beginning to look towards the cross and what's going to happen and it wasn't uncommon to, to anoint people. And she comes and she brings an alabaster box. There's a really great song by, by C.C. C. Uh, C. Winans called Alabaster Box. You should go home and listen to it. She brings an alabaster box, and the text tells us how much was in there. It was 365 days worth of, of, of money, a laborer of a day, which represented a huge amount of money. It was probably all of her life savings. And it's extraordinary that she would even have that. It was probably her ticket out of sex working. And she brings that. And one of the Gospels, two of the Gospels, record that she anointed his head. Remember, anointing with oil? God's chosen, God's blessing, God's healing, and preparing for death. And one of the other Gospels says that she anointed his feet. She probably started with his head and moved to his feet. And as she anointed his feet, she began to rub with her hair to wash his feet. The lowliest of the lowliest positions was to wash someone's feet. And then it records that she kissed him. And the different gospels have different people that attack her. But in every single one of them, Jesus stands up to him, including his own disciples and some of the religious leaders and all of that. Jesus stood up for, he welcomed those who had been sexually shamed and abused. And if Jesus did it, the church of Jesus Christ has got to do it. Amen. We have to be a safe place. We have to be a place that embraces and loves those who have been broken down in these kinds of ways. We need to be an alabaster box kind of church. And not just our church, but the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us that we didn't believe, that we insinuated that it was their fault. Lord, help us. To those of you who have experienced this kind of pain and shame in your life, I want you to know something. The truth is, you are never intended to carry the guilt and shame for what happened to you. You were created in the image of God. I love the story of Adam and Eve. You were created to live in a place where this sort of thing didn't happen. And yet it does. And so you have this thing that has happened to you and you're not well equipped to deal with it. And like I said, the, the sexuality came before the fall. It, it's created good. And so it's not the sex part, it's the assault part that is done through that particularly intimate kind of way. I want you to hear me. You were never intended to carry it. This is why it's so hard for you. But here's what I also know today. This morning, the same Jesus that experienced sexual abuse is here in the Holy Spirit. I've been praying for this Sunday because I know that I know that I'm stirring stuff up. It's hard. 
I can see some of the tears that are flowing in this place right now. And so I believe the only reason I brought this up because we need to talk about it, but I brought it up because I want it to be a source of healing. And so here's what I want to say. Jesus invites you to offload your guilt and shame onto him. He's the only one that can carry it. It wasn't your fault, but the shame is there. And he is the one that offers you. He's standing there asking you to give him the guilt and shame to, to let him have it that you can walk out of here. I am, um, as you know, I have an overactive imagination. Sometimes I think about this as a customs deal. Any of you ever go out of the country and come back, you know? You come back and you got to hand over the fruit and all the stuff that you weren't supposed to bring into the country. See, in the kingdom of God, there's not supposed to be any guilt and shame. But some of you have smuggled the guilt and shame into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, just, just give it to me. Let me have it. Let me carry it for you. Because I can do that. Imagine the king of the universe that stood up for women who had been abused now offers to take the guilt and the shame and carry it himself because he's the only one that can. And by his stripes, we are healed. We're going to go into communion in just a minute here. And I, I just, I know that I've stirred a lot. And if you just want to sit there, that's just fine. But I want to invite you, especially if there's some stuff in your life. You do not have to share this with anybody. We're going to have some people over here that would be happy to pray with you. But I would invite you to come to the Lord's table this morning and to accept again what God is offering you through his table. Let him take the shame. When you take his body in, he offers to take the shame off of you because by his stripes you are healed. And he wants to give you life. You remember that the symbol of the cup is that, that blood was the very lifeblood. It was what they thought made someone alive or not alive. And so he wants to take your shame and he wants to give you life this morning. And he wants to work healing in you. Maybe it doesn't all get healed today, but he wants to begin that process in your life. And I want you to know this is a safe place. Amen. We're going to believe you. We're going to love you. We hold no shame against what happened to you. So if those who are going to help with communion would come and uh, prayer over here as, as well. Uh, we're going to ask you, if you would, if you would uh, come down these two things, uh, this aisle, if you want to take through intention. Uh, and there'll be four places here. Uh, and then over on that side, we will have the uh, self-contained units uh, so that you can go there if you would prefer that. And then I'll be over here and Anna will be over here uh, if you would like to, to pray. We're not going to ask you what you want us to pray about. Normally we do that, but this particular situation, we're not. You just comment. If you want to share, that's fine. We don't have a lot of time, but we would be happy to talk with you. I would be happy to talk with you if you want to talk with me later on this week. Let me ask God's blessing and then let's come to the table of the Lord. Father God, Lord, I... Uh, I've been afraid of this sermon for a long time. I said it the best I know how. I hope, Father, I pray that no one has been damaged by having to deal with this again. But even more than that, Father, I pray that this morning the healing would begin. 
that we would turn over the sin and shame. Even if it's not sexual stuff, but the stuff that, that's in our lives. And Father, that, that in coming to your table, we would realize that, that by your broken body, by your stripes, we are healed, that you provided it and that you can carry the shame. You can carry the guilt. And then as we come to the cup, we're reminded that you give us life. You don't just take it away. You restore our life, Father. That you take that festering wound and you turn it into a scar that reminds us of what you have done for us. So, Father, I ask now that you would inhabit this, your broken body, and shed blood. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we take it into our bodies, that you would work healing and life in us, Father. We're reminded that on the night you were betrayed, you took the bread. And when you give in thanks, you broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you do this, remember that there is healing in Christ's broken body. After supper, he took the cup, and when he had again given thanks, he gave it to them saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. Whenever you do this, remember that Christ is the life giver. He heals and then gives us new life and life more abundantly. The body, and the, Lord, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ preserve us blameless unto everlasting life. Let us come to the table of the Lord. Hey, church family. Thank you for watching this video. It is amazing that you consider this your church home. If you do consider this your church home, we would ask that you would share this video with a friend. If God has been speaking to you, we would hope that you would share this message. As always, like and subscribe so that you don't miss a single video and tune in each Sunday at 10 a.m. on our live stream or you can join us in person. We'll see you next week. God bless.